0: Catholic History Trek, a podcast exploring the Catholic past. On December 19th of 2020, Kevin and I released our first episode of Catholic History Trek. The topic for that episode, Marian titles. Kevin and I covered the history and meaning behind a handful of titles of the Blessed Virgin Mary.
1: I think it's fair to say that first episode was a little rough, perhaps to be expected, our first episode. We were still figuring out the tech side. We were figuring out how to present our material. We were figuring out how to work together seamlessly, and we were, to some extent, figuring out what or who we wanted to be as a podcast.
0: And when you say who we were as a podcast or who we wanted to be, I assume you mean whether we were going to talk about trains and just sprinkle in a little Catholic history here and there, or... Whether we talk about Catholic history and maybe sprinkle in a little about trains. And, of course, would we ever be able to work in Johnny Horton's Battle of New Orleans back into another episode?
1: Something like that. I had no idea we were going to get into trains and guns and Johnny Horton when we started this thing. But that's part of what makes it fun. It will be clear in any case to long-time listeners, as it is to us, that we have come a long way since that first episode. Not to say there isn't room for adaptation and improvement, there always is, but I think we've found our voice as a podcast.
0: And we've steadily grown our reach as a podcast, especially thanks to you, our listeners. We would like to thank all of you, and I'd also like to thank a generous donor who voluntarily funded an equipment upgrade for my microphone.
1: And that donation is the sum total of the money we've made from this project. We got into this not expecting to make money, and our profit has matched our expectations. But seriously, we do this as a labor of love. Both of us have spent a lot of time reading and researching in church tradition and history, and we wanted to share what interests and edifies us, in the hope that it will interest and edify others.
0: And Kevin, speaking of history, today is a special day in our podcast history, as we are recording our 50th episode. Who knew 50 episodes in, and we've still barely scratched the surface for the topics that we both want to cover. In honor of this 50th golden anniversary, we've decided to revisit the topic from our very first episode, Marian titles. Instead of simply rehashing the titles we've already covered, we are trekking through the historical background on a new set of Marian titles. Kevin and I left quite a few titles on the shelf in that initial episode. If you consider the Litany of Loretto itself has about 50 unique titles, and if you include a title for each of the many approved Marian apparitions, Kevin and I will still have more than enough titles to cover if we decide to revisit the topic of Marian titles again for our 100th episode.
1: So the first title we're going to look at in this episode is Our Lady of Consolation, I became interested in this one because it was the church I attended during the first two years of my time in Philadelphia, when my apartment was a block away from that church. In fact, I discovered various new titles for Mary in Philadelphia. In a diocese that size, with that many parishes, the churches have to be creative with their nomenclature, I guess. There were Our Lady of Good Counsel, Our Lady of Calvary, and, strangest to me at the time, Our Lady of Ransom. But that shouldn't be strange to Catholic History Trek listeners, because Scott has a podcast on that. Our Lady of Consolation was an Italian national parish, and it turns out that that ethnic connection was no coincidence. The invocation of Mary as consoler goes way back in church history. Comforter of the afflicted is one of the invocations in the Litany of Loretto, which we mentioned in our previous Marian Titles episode, and which I explored further in my litanies episode. The reasons for this title are fairly obvious. As Queen of the Saints, Mary has always been the primary intercessor for Christians with God when they have gone to prayer. And, of course, people often go to prayer when they're experiencing challenges, troubles, or sorrows of some kind. So it's natural that Mary would be seen as someone bringing comfort or consolation. But there's also a very strong tradition within Catholicism of associating Mary herself with sorrow and its obverse consolation. There are devotions to Our Lady of Sorrows, the seven sorrows of Mary, Our Lady of Calvary, as I just mentioned, and so on. These are rooted in, among other things, accounts of Mary accompanying Jesus throughout his Passion, most notably Jesus meeting his mother during his way of the cross, that's the fourth station of the cross, and her presence at the foot of the cross during his final hours and death. From the Gospel of John, where he utters the momentous words, Behold your Son, and behold your mother." So we have Our Lady of Consolation, or sometimes Our Mother of Consolation. There are icons and shrines dedicated to Mary under this title all over the world. They're especially common in Europe and the Americas. The devotion has long been associated with the Augustinian Order, friars, canons, and nuns, for whom Our Lady of Consolation, along with Saint Monica and Saint Augustine, is one of the three patrons of the Order. Dating the founding of the Augustinian Order is a problematic task. If you really want to dive into that, check out the Old Catholic Encyclopedia article on that subject. But certainly the Order was promoting devotion to Our Lady of Consolation by the 1400s. The devotion became notably popular in Italy, and was so in the late 19th and early 20th centuries when a large number of Italian immigrants migrated to the U.S. and settled in places such as Philadelphia, where they founded parishes such as Our Lady of Consolation. But nationalities other than Italians and religious orders other than Augustinians have gotten on the bandwagon. Jesuits promoted the devotion in Luxembourg from whence it spread to England via Benedictine nuns and to the United States via Belgian immigrants who built the Shrine of Our Lady of Consolation in Leopold, Indiana. The National Shrine of Our Lady of Consolation, a basilica, is located in Cary, Ohio, just down the road from the home of Catholic History Trek and it's administered by Capuchin Franciscans. The second title I'm looking at is Star of the Sea, or Stella Maris. It's another ancient title for Mary. Like Our Lady of Consolation, it does not appear as such in the Litany of Loreto, although, like Our Lady of Consolation, there is a similar invocation, Morning Star. And Star of the Sea itself does appear in another Marian litany, the Gaelic litany used in Irish monasteries from the 8th century on. The title dates from the time of Jerome in the 300s, and the chant hymn Ave Mare Stella has been popular throughout the church from the early Middle Ages. Its first verse goes like this, Hail, bright star of ocean, God's own mother blessed, ever sinless virgin, gate of heavenly rest. Coined in an age when heavenly bodies were indispensable for navigation, the title reflects the idea that Mary is a sign pointing to her son a bright star guiding her children to God and to heaven amid the world's storms and troubled waters. This name for Mary has unsurprisingly been especially meaningful to seafarers, sailors, fishermen, all those who live near or spend time on the sea. And countless churches along the world's coastlines are dedicated to Mary under this title, Star of the Sea.
0: For centuries after the fall of the Roman Empire, most of Spain was under the control of the Visigoths, That control is lost with the Moorish invasion of the Iberian Peninsula in 711. In one of the first battles of that invasion, Visigothic King Roderick was defeated at the Battle of Godalete in southern Spain. The survivor of this battle was a man named Don Peleo, who was possibly a page or royal bodyguard for the defeated king. Peleo led a group of knights who withdrew to the northern mountains of Asturias to regroup and mount a resistance against the swift capitulation of Spain. It's said that in the year 717, Pleo was captured by the Moors and sent to Cordoba, but he escaped and returned to the Cantabrian Mountains where he resumed leadership of the Asturian rebels of about 300 men. In 718, Pleo became their king, and in the spring of 722, a massive Moorish army arrived to dislodge these few last holdouts in Asturias, who stood between the Moors and complete domination of the Iberian Peninsula. Amid the crags of the mountainous Asturias, Pleio and his men were positioned in a cave at Covadonga. There, they prayed to the Blessed Virgin Mary for her assistance and intercession before God. The following day, the Moors attacked. The assault began with Moors firing arrows and stones, only to have their projectiles reverse course and fall upon those who fired them. Pleo's men sent boulders down upon their enemy and started avalanches that initially caused the Moors to retreat. But soon, they regrouped and attacked again. This time, the sky darkened and heavy rain fell, making the rocks treacherous and slippery. With rocks falling upon them, torrential rain dislodging their footing, and avalanches knocking them down, the Moors were losing many soldiers. Yet they continued their attack, as for every one soldier who fell, two more were there to take his place. Suddenly, a strange light appeared in the cave of Covadonga. And in its midst, the mother of God appeared to Peleo and his beleaguered men. She bore a red shield with a white cross with the holy name of Jesus upon it. Speaking to Peleo, she said, Take courage, the Moors are wavering. Go out now and attack them in the name of Jesus Christ and you shall conquer. Peleo and his men rushed upon the Moors and defeated them in what was the first victory against the Moors since their invasion of Spain a decade earlier. The Moors never did take Asturias, and the battle is generally considered to be the beginning of the Reconquista, which was the 7th centuries long reclamation of the Iberian Peninsula from the Moorish invaders. In the 8th century, a chapel was built at the site of the cave in honor of Our Lady of Covadonga. The original chapel was destroyed by fire in 1777 and slowly rebuilt until the present basilica was begun in 1877 and consecrated in 1901. In our Catholic History Trek episode on the Jesuits, I mentioned how, after his conversion, St. Ignatius of Loyola made a three-day self-examination and general confession at Montserrat, after which he gave his rich clothing to the poor, donned sackcloth, and suspended his sword and dagger at Our Lady's altar. Now, 30 episodes later, I'm finally getting around to explaining the shrine at Montserrat, visited by St. Ignatius. In the period of the early church, an image was carved of the Blessed Virgin Mary seated on a throne with the child Jesus seated on her lap. The wooden statue is just over three feet tall and covered in gilded gold, except for the faces and hands of Jesus and Mary, which have turned a dark color due to the countless candles and lamps used to illuminate the image. It's been proposed that this image was carved by St. Luke, although this tradition is not as strong as other works of art attributed to the saint. The image, which originated in the Holy Land, made its way to Barcelona, apparently brought by the Bishop of Barcelona. It remained in Barcelona until it was moved for greater protection from the Moors, after their early 8th century invasion of the Iberian Peninsula. In the region of Catalonia, about 20 miles northwest of Barcelona, rises a mountain called Montserrat, meaning Salon Mountain, in the native Catalonian language. In 718, the statue was moved here for safekeeping. Unfortunately. Its location at Montserrat was lost over the years. It was known to be in the mountains, but nobody could seem to remember where exactly. It wasn't until the late 9th century that the image was rediscovered. Shepherds tending their flocks at night saw lights and heard sounds of singing coming from the mountains. This nightly event repeated, and news of it spread. Eventually, the statue was discovered in a cave, at the source of the mysterious lights and singing. It was decided to move the statue, either to nearby Moressa or the Cathedral of Barcelona. Sources seem mixed on the destination. Regardless, the image never made it to either location, which could explain why there's disagreement on where it was to be moved. After the statue was removed from the cave, attempts to move the statue from Montserrat failed. The statue became unmovable, almost as if refusing to be moved any further. This was taken as a heavenly sign to leave it at Montserrat. So the statue was kept in the mountains and a convent was built at the spot. The nuns of the Royal Abbey of Las Puelas of Barcelona took possession of the abbey around the year 895, although, after a century, the abbey changed hands and Benedictine monks became custodians of the shrine of Our Lady of Montserrat, which they have served ever since. In 1592, the shrine was expanded into a basilica, and in 1881, Pope Leo XIII crowned it with a pontifical coronation and named Our Lady of Montserrat the patron saint of Catalonia. The shrine of Our Lady of Montserrat receives more than one million visitors annually and has been visited by such noteworthy saints as Saint Peter Nolasco and Saint Raymond of Penafort, both of whom were mentioned in our episode on Our Lady of Ransom, Saint Vincent Ferrer. St. Francis Borgia, St. Aloysius Gonzaga, St. Joseph Calsanctius, St. Anthony Mary Claret, and the aforementioned St. Ignatius of Loyola. The final two
1: titles I want to treat in this episode both do appear in the Litany of Loretto, and they both derive from the Old Testament. The first is Turis Davidica, or Tower of David. It's succinctly explained in a meditation by St. John Henry Newman, the great nineteenth century English convert. He writes A tower in its simplest idea is a building for defense against enemies. David, king of Israel, built for this purpose a notable tower, and as he is a figure or type of our Lord, so is his tower a figure denoting our Lord's virgin mother. She is called the Tower of David because she had so signally fulfilled the office of defending her divine Son from the assaults of his foes. The title probably derives from the Song of Songs, which is frequently mined for images of Our Lady. Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 4. Like a tower of David, your neck, built in courses, a thousand shields hanging upon it, all the armor of warriors. Consistent with Newman's reflection, this clearly conveys the idea of strength and defense. Again, a natural concept for Catholics in treating Mary for assistance in difficulties, or especially when confronted by enemies. At your alma mater, Scott, the University of Dayton, there is a Marian Institute, which has a remarkable online exhibit consisting of scanned images from a rare 18th century book of engravings by a German artist, Joseph Klauber. The book is the Litany of Loretto, and consists of engravings for each of the titles of Mary mentioned in the litany. So if you want to see a terrific depiction of Mary as Tower of David, check it out. An inscription at the bottom of that page invokes Psalm 61. In Latin, of course, but the English reads this way. You are a tower of strength against the foe. The Ark of the Covenant is another Old Testament reference and title of Mary. The Ark was one of the most sacred items in the history of Judaism. Exodus chapter 25 describes the vessel to be constructed by the Israelites at the time of Moses. About four feet by two feet by two feet, made of acacia wood, covered in gold inside and out, ornamented with golden-winged cherubim. According to the book of Hebrews, the ark contained the two stone tablets upon which the Ten Commandments were inscribed, Aaron's rod and a jar of manna. All of these signs of the covenant between God and the people of Israel. The ark's ultimate fate is unknown, though it was commonly believed to have been plundered by the Babylonians when they invaded Israel and destroyed the temple of Jerusalem in 587 BC. It apparently made its way to an Egyptian temple where it was found by an American archaeologist then stolen by German Nazis, and ended up hidden in a U.S. government warehouse. I'm kidding, that last sentence is all nonsense, but it is the plot of the entertaining 1981 Indiana Jones movie starring Harrison Ford. This title, Ark of the Covenant, as an invocation to Mary, appears in the Litany of Loreto, as I mentioned, and dates back to the early centuries of the Church. It is one of the titles, like Tower of David, that holds within it the implication of a whole theology of Christ and the New Covenant. In the 200s, St. Gregory Thaumaturgus, the Wonder Worker, wrote, The Holy Virgin is in truth an ark wrought with gold both within and without that has received the whole treasury of the sanctuary. And various church fathers, saints, and scripture scholars have highlighted the parallels ever since. Even as the glory of the Lord overshadowed and filled the ark in the tabernacle of the temple, so the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary when she conceived our Lord and became the dwelling place of God. In 2 Samuel, chapter 6, the ark travels to the hill country of Judea, and David asks, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And he shouts in the presence of the ark. In Luke, chapter 1, Mary travels to the hill country to visit Elizabeth. Elizabeth cries out in a loud voice and asks, How the mother of my Lord should come to me? In sum, as Jesus takes the place of the temple in the new covenant, so Mary takes the place of the ark. Mary is the ark of the covenant.
0: So, Kevin, if you're saying that Indiana Jones is not a reliable historical source, does that mean when we cover the Holy Grail in a future episode that it's probably not going to be protected by a thousand-year-old knights of the Templar in the city of Petra?
1: I think that's likely, yeah. Although, I guess I should say, I don't, since we really don't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant, I guess it's possible that it happened the way Indiana Jones says, but it um, seems
0: unlikely, yeah. So the third topic I want to cover has very little to do with Indiana Jones or Knights Templar. But like Indiana Jones, it does involve a pilgrimage, not a pilgrimage to the Ark or for the Grail. But there are many Marian pilgrimage sites with statues or paintings referred to as a Black Madonna. Some of these images are black by intent, while others blackened or darkened over the years. Of the images which became darker over the years, perhaps the most famous is the image of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Czestochowa, Poland. Although, arguably the second most famous is a dark 25-inch tall wooden statue located at a shrine in Altating in Bavaria. The wooden statue of Our Lady is formerly known as Our Lady of Altating or Our Lady of Bavaria. An octagonal chapel called the Shrine of the Chapel of Grace was built around the year 680 and still stands today. In 1330, a small Italian statue was presented to this chapel either by the Holy Roman Emperor, Ludwig IV, or by the nearby Cistercian Monastery. The surface of this statue, made of limewood, has blackened over the ages by the natural browning of the European lime, the thousands of candles burned near it, and a fire which burned the church a few centuries ago. The dark coloring is why it's one of the many Black Madonnas. In the statue's left arm, Mary holds a scepter with a lily blossom as a sign of her virginity, and in her right arm rests the Christ child, holding a celestial sphere signifying the omnipotence of God. Since the Broke period, both Our Lady and the Christ child have been donned in exquisite robes and elaborate crowns. The crowns, adorned with precious stones, were often donated by female members of the royal Wittelsbach family, while the robes, called Noddenrocken or Skirts of Mercy, began clothing the statue in 1518 the robes are changed depending on the liturgical season, and traditionally, when princesses of this royal Wittelsbach family were wed, they made a pilgrimage to Altötting to sacrifice their wedding dresses to provide material for new Gnadenrocken. Many miraculous healings have been attributed to Our Lady's intercession at the shrine, making it a popular pilgrimage destination and earning it the unofficial title as The Lords of Germany. Perhaps the most famous, of these miracles, occurred in 1489 when a young boy drowned. Just like in our Catholic History Trek episode on Our Lady of Las Lajas, a distraught mother brought the body of her deceased child to the shrine, and, as in the miracle of Las Lajas, the mother of God interceded on the mom's behalf, and the deceased child was restored to life. Of the many pilgrims who have visited the shrine of Our Lady of Altating, a few notable ones stand out. In 1980, Pope John Paul II visited the Shrine, and in 2006, Pope Benedict XVI visited the Shrine and left his Episcopal ring, which had been presented to him by his siblings, Mary and George, on the occasion of his ordination as Archbishop of Munich in 1977. The Shrine was also the home of St. Conrad of Parzon, a 19th-century Franciscan who served as the porter, or chapel doorkeeper, of the Shrine for a span of four decades, As I mentioned a moment ago, among the many black Madonnas, perhaps the most famous, is Our Lady of Czestochowa in Poland. The exact origin of the image of Our Lady of Czestochowa is lost to history, but the traditional account of this image of Mary holding the child Jesus in her arms has the image painted by none other than St. Luke the Evangelist. And some even claim it was painted on a piece of wood cut from the table of the Last Supper. It's a matter of speculation or pious tradition, as there's no sure way to link the image to the saint, other than recognizing that St. Luke was an artist, and the image does come from the time period that could have made Luke its creator. A few centuries after the image was created, it was either discovered by St. Helena or presented by the Christians of the Holy Land to St. Helena, who then presented it to her son, the Roman Emperor Constantine who erected a church for its enthronement in Constantinople. Years later, when the city was besieged by Saracens, it said the citizens of Constantinople carried the image in a procession around the city, resulting in the infidels fleeing the city. After that Saracen threat, the image was next threatened by iconoclasm, which Kevin and I have yet to cover in a Catholic History Trek episode, but... Essentially, iconoclasm was a heretical movement which plagued the Eastern Church in which Catholic artwork and images were destroyed. The movement later popped up during the rise of Protestantism, especially under the iconoclasts such as Zwingli and Calvin. Over the next few centuries, through marriage dowries, the image worked its way from Constantinople to Ukraine and through Russia until finally arriving in Poland. At this point, the history of the image becomes a little more reliable. In the 15th century, the image came to St. Ladislas, the king of Hungary. Ladislas installed the image in his castle, where it was damaged when an arrow from an invading Tartar army inflicted a scar. Possibly inspired by a dream, Ladislas determined to protect the image from future attacks and set out to move the image to his birthplace in Opola in Poland. En route to Opola, Ladislas and his group stopped in Czestochowa, for a rest and placed the image in a small church of the Assumption at nearby Jasnagura, meaning Bright Hill. The following morning, when the image was loaded in the wagon, the horses refused to move. Similar to Our Lady of Montserrat, the inability of the men to move the image was taken as a sign from heaven that the image should stay. So, on August 26th of 1382, Our Lady of Chestahova was officially installed in its present location, and this date is observed as the feast day of the image. Desiring to have the holiest of men guarding the painting, King Ladislaus invited the Pauline fathers to be the custodians of the shrine, which they've undertaken for the past 600 years. The image of Our Lady of Czestochowa would only be safe in the Pauline monastery for about half a century before it would be threatened again. This time it was the Hussites, followers of the heretic priest John Huss, The Hussites stormed and plundered the monastery in 1430. Among the items stolen by the Proto-Protestant Hussites was the image of Our Lady of Czestochowa. After placing it in their wagon, they were only able to escape a short distance from the monastery before their horses refused to go any further. Again the image rebuffed any attempt to remove it from Czestochowa. Wanting to make their escape, the heretics discarded the image, throwing it to the ground which broke it into three pieces. One of the Hussites then slashed the image twice, causing two deep gashes in the cheeks of the image of the Virgin. When he attempted to strike the image a third time, it's said he fell dead. Our Lady of Czestochowa is renowned as the Queen of Poland, and the shrine has been a popular spot where Poles seek her intercession and protection when Poland is threatened. It's home to hundreds of thousands of pilgrims every year, and has many miraculous healings attributed to it. Some characteristics of the image, the two slashes which were made on the cheeks of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the Hussite and the Tartar's arrow which struck her throat, have always reappeared after artistic attempts to repair them. The black coloring of the Madonna and Child, leading to its unofficial title as a Black Madonna, are said to have come from the age of the pigmentation, as well as smoke from the candles which were used for centuries to illuminate the painting. Pope Clement gave the image official recognition in 1717 with the canonical coronation, although the crown was stolen in 1909, and Pope Pius X then replaced it with its current golden crown, which is encrusted with jewels. A brief history on the order of St. Paul the First Hermit, or Pauline Fathers, who have been custodians of the Black Madonna since 1382. In the early 13th century, Blessed Eusebius united hermits in Hungary under the patronage of St. Paul the Hermit. Later that century, the order received official approval, then spread rapidly, and by the early 16th century, there were 300 monasteries throughout Europe, Palestine, and Egypt. But destruction and suppression of the monks by the Turks, and later by the Protestants, devastated the order to such a degree that by the beginning of the 20th century, only two Pauline monasteries remained, in Krakow and Chestahova. In the 20th century, the order saw a modest rebirth, and in the early 1930s, the Pauline Fathers were finally able to return to Hungary, where the order originated. And today, there are about 70 monasteries and 500 members of the Paulines, and in 1955, an American national shrine of Our Lady of Chestehova was established in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, with a replica of the image. In
1: the words of Lumen Gentium, the Second Vatican Council's Constitution on the Church, Just as the mother of Jesus, glorified in body and soul in heaven, is the image and beginning of the church as it is to be perfected in the world to come, so too does she shine forth on earth until the day of the Lord shall come, as a sign of sure hope and solace to the people of God during its sojourn on earth. Considering the entire span of church history, no figure other than Christ has inspired so abundantly the creation of art, music, literature, and prayer, as has his mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Her innumerable titles are one aspect of this prodigious cultural and spiritual outpouring. Naturally, we want to conclude this episode with the best-known of Marian prayers, the Hail Mary. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominis tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus.
0: Sancta Maria Mater Dei, ora or pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc in et hora mortis nostrae. Amen.
1: Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at Catholic History Trek at gmail.com.